Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... Not being profitable limits your ability to expand and limits the impact that you're able to have. We knew the opportunities that we wanted to capitalise on, but we never had a target of a billion dollars or two billion dollars or anything like that. After Brisbane-based entrepreneur Kathy Reed, with husband and business partner Stuart Giles, had fought their way back from the brink of failure after slowly working through their mire of debt, how did they manage to get their epic pharmacy group back on track and growing? And what on earth propelled them forward with their ambitious plans to expand into cancer care services, not only across Australia, but into Asia as well? Well, as Kathy tells it, while the couple somewhat moderated their risk-taking, they nonetheless held firm to their vision to provide private cancer oncology centres in regional areas in Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria, offering their patients treatment much closer to their homes. In part two of our chat, Kathy Reed reveals how they manage the rapid scale-up of their ambitious plans via partnerships and private equity, dealing with the notion of a $1 billion valuation for the company, and just how philanthropy, a love of cricket, and even Richard Branson's space tourism now fit into her life's picture. Kathy Reid, once you got through the enormous challenges of the GFC, how then did you grow, ensure profitability and ensure resilience in your business? Well, I think the GFC taught us so many lessons. It not only moderated our risk-taking behaviour, which which had been moderated o- over the course of the business growing as is a necessary outcome anyway, but it also it had completely changed the lending landscape and the financial landscape. And there was we knew there was never going to be a return yeah. to going back to the way things were previously. So we still had our plan that we were working on. And in 2012, the opportunity to actually buy into the first of the cancer hospitals arose. We'd been a pharmacy provider there for a significant period of time. We got to know the doctors quite well. They trusted us, their pharmacy provider. We'd been very open. If they ever were interested in selling the business, we were interested buyers and they received an approach from another party and came to us and said, are you still interested? And we said yes and then sort of looked. We'd come through the GFC and things were looking a little prettier certainly than they were back there, but it was still well and truly outside of the capacity of either the bank's lending appetite and our personal balance sheet to be able to fund that. So we sold the manufacturing business to fund the acquisition of, of that first set of, of hospitals then. The pharmacies were well and truly profitable by then and the cancer care business was, was profitable as well when we bought it. And then we realised quite quickly that we not only wanted to deliver chemotherapy and medical oncology services, which was what those, those initial cancer hospitals were doing, but we also wanted to expand into radiation oncology as well. And that's a much more expensive proposition. The linear accelerators that deliver the radiation therapy are very expensive and that was certainly mm. something that was going to be 
outside of our fundraising capability again from a personal perspective. So that was when we took in, um, we took a private equity investment into the business for the first time back in 2014 ah. when we sold a stake in the business to Quadrant. So why did you go with private equity and what did that then value your group at? The pharmacies were completely separate. So it was the oncology hospitals right. that Quadrant took took the stake in then. We went with private equity. I guess Stuart had actually won the Entrepreneur of the Year Award through yep. EY back in, I want to say, 2009, 2009, 2010. And that I guess that introduced us into the world of private equity because yes. it was the first thing probably that really put the business in the spotlight. And so we had a raft of PE firms then actually approach us and say they were interested in buying in. And at that stage, it wasn't anything that interested us. But when the time came down the track, we actually thought that that was a model well, that we'd had some exposure to from those initial approaches. Yeah. And we thought that it wasn't only the funds that they actually were able to deliver, it was the business acumen yeah. and you know, the, that real growth focus that, were, that was very appealing. So we, we sort of did the rounds and met with a huge number of different firms, but Quadrant was the one that really appealed to us. We liked the guys there, we liked their approach, and they were the ones that we subsequently partnered with. Yeah. So just to be clear for listeners, you offer your cancer care centres or clinics, you offer cancer patients an alternative to what going into public hospitals for their cancer care. So they come to one of yours, which are perhaps more spread around in different uh, suburbs and regions, and people pay for their care in your centres. Generally, it's a private health insurance that fund that funds their care. Yeah. So we have some self-funded patients, but the vast majority of them, their care and treatment is funded through their private health insurance. You're quite right. We have while we have facilities in in the capital cities, we've had a really strong focus, particularly with the radiation oncology centres, in actually putting those in regional centres to be able to allow patients mm. the benefit of being able to stay close to home. If you're having radiation therapy, it's a it's a daily treatment generally for four to six weeks. It's very short. It only goes for 10 minutes or so each day. But if you live in Mackay or Townsville or somewhere like that and you have to come to Brisbane for treatment, it actually means that you've got to stay away from your family for that four to six weeks because you obviously can't travel every day. And Having treatment for cancer is a, is a really stressful time for patients and their, and their families and their support networks. So we were really passionate about that delivering the best care possible as close to home as possible for people. And that's really what's driven the expansion of the ICON network, both across Australia and throughout Asia. Quadrant, you said, helped you not only their fantastic, you know, what they offer in terms of their business acumen, but this focus on growth. Now, did they help you expand overseas? Yeah, so under while Quadrant were investing with us, that was when we actually made the acquisition in Singapore and bought the um, cancer hospitals in Singapore, which again were a medical oncology, the chemotherapy delivery. How many hospitals did you buy? Uh, I think there were four in the initial in the initial acquisition there. It's now there's been a couple more that have joined 
since then. So it's a little, the Singaporean model is a little bit different to Australia. So where a lot of the hospital buildings in Singapore kind of have hospitals within hospitals, if you like. So rather than it being a full hospital, while it's a licensed hospital, it's it's more, a, I think, you probably, in Australian terms, it's probably more, you'd see it more as like a, a clinic within a hospital. Yes, but, yeah. um, So we were in, I think, the initial acquisition saw us go into, there were four or five initial hospitals yeah. in Singapore. But Quadrant were really transparent that, you know, primarily at that stage, particularly in the fund that we were in, it was an Australian-based fund. And so when the time was coming, towards the end of their investment because it is the one thing that you always know with a PE partner that you're here for a short time. It's a short-term thing or relatively short A good short-term time thing. and a short time. <laughs> a good t- Hopefully a good time and a short time and a good time. So, you know, it's, it's very open. Yeah, they're always short-term investors, aren't they? Exactly. So everyone was very clear about that from the start. And after the Singapore hospitals were acquired and the operations expanded over there, we all knew that we were coming towards the end of what had been a really good time and needed to start looking for who the next PE partner was going to be. And so that was that ended up being a, a consortium led by Goldman Sachs out of their Hong Kong fund, QIC, which is the Queensland Government Investment Corporation and a, and a smaller fund in China. And Quadrant sold their stake to that consortium in 2017, which was, I guess, the time that the valuation on the group was actually placed, which I think was widely reported in the financial press as being north of a billion dollars, which was a pretty pretty crazy moment for us, to be honest, going back from kind of that kitchen table startup in 1998. Oh, Kathy, could you believe that sort of valuation? No, and I think for us, you know, people said, you know, what was your target for getting to a billion dollar valuation? And it's like, we, we never said one. Was that the, always the plan that you were going to build this billion dollar business? And we're like, no, we just, we had a plan for the business and we knew, I guess, we knew the impact that we wanted to we wanted to create, we knew the opportunities that we wanted to capitalise on, but we never had a target of a billion dollars or $2 billion or anything like that. A profitable business, yes, absolutely, mm. because not being profitable limits your ability to expand and limits the impact that of you're course. able to have. If you can actually create a well-run profitable business that's actually making a really positive impact on patients across the region, then being able to have that run profitably and provide those funds to continue to expand and grow is something that we're we're really passionately committed to the importance of. But it was never about getting a certain metric. Yeah. So when Quadrant sold out, they were obviously happy with their return. <laughs> they were very happy. When they sold, we took a little bit off the table, but the we left the majority of our stake still invested in Icon. Were you happy with uh, with what you got out of the deal to sell to Queensland Investment Corp and Goldman Sachs, etc.? We were very happy with the transaction. We felt it was a great group of partners who were able to help the, not only help the business go forward and support it into into its next stage of growth, but also the opportunity for us to take something off the table was also 
really positive too. It, it allowed us to do some different things. It allowed us to diversify. You know, for the for the first 20 years, really, everything that we had was very much doubled down mm. in the pharmacies and icon. We didn't have any external investments or really anything out of that. So uh, again, our, our investment committee and our advisors gave us strong encouragement to to look at what we could explore and, and to see that there was a world outside of pharmacy and that there were other things that we could also get involved in. So mm. that, I guess, created an, an interesting next chapter. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, I guess it gave you freedom money, if you want to call it that. But last yeah. year, you made your debut on the AFR Rich List. With a net wealth they estimated at five hundred and fifty million dollars, that's quite a pile, Kathy. <laughs> yeah, look, and I mean, it's it, it's always interesting when um, these sort of articles are run because it's not why you do what you do, and it certainly doesn't mean that you've got that sort of money sitting in your bank account. Far from it. it, it it's the estimation of, I guess, the their estimated shareholdings and estimated values of, of the businesses that you're involved yes. in and that you've created. But but at the same time, it, 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 is, it is a bit of a pinch me moment where you go, Oh, wow! Bet. You know those days when we were uh, when we were scouting for who had the uh, had the old credit card machines. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's a long way from there. I mean, what does that fairly massive wealth mean to you? You came from fairly humble beginnings in Latrobe Valley. What does it allow you to do? The biggest singular thing is freedom. It gives you an enormous amount of freedom of of choices and decision making, but it also comes with a lot of obligation as well that Mm. I think there is that obligation to actually do good with what you've done and what you've created too. You know, we're under no illusion around how fortunate we are in comparison to many, many people, not just in Australia, but, but across the world. And I think there is a real sense of obligation that we that we both feel in making sure that we actually use that opportunity and that influence to be mm. able to contribute positively, which is where the Epic Good Foundation was born. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, I mean, philanthropy is obviously important to you. You and Stuart started Epic Good Foundation, what, five years ago. Just briefly, what is that and, and what are your aims there? So I guess both of us were raised in families that really highlighted the importance of actually you know, being a good human and doing what you could to leave the world a better place than when you found it. And in particular, looking around your community and seeing what you could do and what you could be involved in to make a positive contribution. So back in the sort of back in the early days of the business, we obviously didn't have a lot that we were able to do in terms of financial contributions. But what we did have was a whole lot of willing people. You know, mm. as we talked about previously, we went from kind of one and two to 300 very, very quickly. And that meant that we had a lot of people there and around who also wanted to have the opportunity to make that positive contribution Mm. too. And we had a lot of suppliers and people that we knew across the industry. So we were able to harness that to whether that be via people power, whether that be via collecting fundraising efforts and that type of thing. And so philanthropy became something that was really deeply embedded, I guess, as in the core values and, and what we, part of our employee offer, if you like, from a very early time. Then obviously, as our own financial circumstances changed, that gave us the opportunity to be able to contribute 
from a financial perspective as mm. well and to expand that reach. And you might look at the organisations that Epic Good Foundation supports and think they're a bit of an eclectic bunch, which they, they kind of are, but each one of them has come through some form of deeply personal connection to us, whether we've crossed paths with one of the founders of the charities, whether we've had someone who's involved who's been a beneficiary of one of those organisations, mm. there's always something that's actually touched our hearts in each and every one of those, which has led to our decision to actually support and to work with that organisation. Oh, look, it's fantastic. And it's great, you know, to have a lot of business leaders who are happy to talk about their commitment to philanthropy, whereas once upon a time, it was all, oh, no, I couldn't possibly talk about it and all that. But it it helps, you know, the Warren Buffett idea that it helps encourage perhaps others to do it, the Bill Gates idea. Exactly. I mean, I, th- I think there's, you know, and then any time that you do talk about it, there there are always, you know, like everything, there's always the, pe- the keyboard warriors who'll sit there and bang out some mm. nasty comment about how you could be doing more or you could be doing something different or you're only talking about what you do because you want people to pat you on the back. But you do have to put those aside and go, well, if not, like, like you say, if nobody talks about the fact that they are doing these things. And sometimes it's about drawing attention to the organisation that you're working with, or sometimes it's about drawing organisation amongst your peers to go, well, hang on, we're putting our hands in our pockets and supporting this, you know, and almost working on that kind of alpha competitive nature to go, well, if we're doing this, hopefully that stimulates you to do something as well. Changing tack, I suppose, you're a co-investor, you and Stuart are co-investors in a new startup, the Australian Premier League in cricket. Why? Is this, <laughs> is this a business idea or a wonderful whim because uh, you both love cricket? Look, it's probably it, it's probably a bit of both, to be honest. Um, and certainly, as we're now moving on from our active roles in Icon Group and sort of looking at at what we actually do yeah. as next steps, we've probably had a long term now association with a number of different professional sporting bodies, which has come initially sort of, I guess, through business life and and particularly, you know, women's sports. So we were, we sponsored the Lions AFLW team and I'm on the board of the Lions there. We were the first sponsors for the Brisbane Heat women's cricket team, which again, all goes back to, we have an 85% female workforce. And so why would we put our money into men's sport, our sponsorship dollars into men's sport rather than, you know, supporting the demograph essentially that that our business has been based on. As a consequence there, we've got to know, I guess, both the cricketing professional bodies and, and the AFL professional bodies. And that's delivered a, a number of different opportunities there. And then the cricket league, when some guys came and had a chat with us about that, one of the things we're really passionate about is that important role that grassroots sports mm. plays, not only as a feeder competition for the elite level sports, but also the community role that it actually delivers and the, the almost the, the social glue that it actually provides in getting kids outside, getting them active, giving them opportunities to engage with other adults. And, you know, sometimes for some kids, the role models that they actually have from their sporting clubs are the most positive role models 
in their lives and have, mm. go on to have a lifelong yes, impact but I mean, on them. But let me play devil's advocate, Cathy. I mean, they can do that already. There's loads of, uh, loads of local cricket and then, of course, professional and national cricket. IPL in India is obviously a massive winner. Do you think you can possibly replicate that success? Is, is that what you want to do? Look, I mean, potentially, I think the um, the thing around, and it's certainly um, a long way away from that as a starting proposition. And to be really clear, this is a this is a supportive and an additional thing to the existing cricket infrastructure right. that exists, not a replacement. So one of the, th- the the tournaments and the competitions actually exist outside of the playing times and alongside the feeder comps for all of the other cricket associations. The difference is that at the moment. The thing that doesn't exist is Big Bash, which is what the kids see on TV and what the kids actually want to play. And it requires sometimes quite a different skill set to certainly test and, and one-day cricket, which are the, the traditional forms. And so sometimes the kids who actually both want to play Big Bash and maybe have the skills and talents there risk actually going by the by because they don't have the talent in the other disciplines. And so this gives them an opportunity to, I guess, highlight their skills. Same thing for some of the, um, the, not just the kids, but the adult players as well, that if they haven't actually been able to get picked up into a state or a national team because they haven't, you know, Big Bash Mm. is kind of their thing and it's the only, it's where the, their particular skills and talents lie, this actually allows them to be identified and hopefully be able to secure those contracts to go into those comps where they may previously not have had that opportunity to uh, to highlight themselves. Mm, mm. Kathy, you've been very humble right through this uh, interview and, and it obviously sort of permeates your life, but I'm going to name drop on your behalf. I believe <laughs> you are very close friends with uh, Sir Richard Branson. You celebrated an important birthday maybe last year and had a pretty amazing party and then you, you've invested as a co-owner in Richard Branson and Brett Godfrey's island, Makepeace Island in Noosa. How did you come to know Richard Branson and, and perhaps what have you learned from him in business? We are in that really fortunate position that we have that we have got to know Richard quite well in the end. Our very initial meeting actually came through. Uh, Richard was a speaker for Business Chicks, which is an organisation in Australia that I've had a, a long-term association with, and we sponsored a breakfast in Brisbane that right. Richard was the guest speaker at, and met. And he spoke about Virgin Galactic there. This was back years and years ago, and apparently I leant over to Stuart and said, "One day I'd really love to do that." But at the time, you know, it was we were it was reasonably fresh out of the GFC, and the idea of us actually, the idea of me being able to um, have a ticket to go to space with Virgin Galactic was literally as far away as the moon. And <laughs> <laughs> but Stuart remembered and um, things changed and he uh, he bought me a ticket five or six years ago wow. as a Christmas present wow. for Virgin Galactic. So just a minute, just a minute. Oh, okay. Go back to the original story about meeting Richard yeah, and so perhaps that, what you've learned from yeah, him. So, that, so then Lisa Messenger is a, is a really good friend of mine and she rang me up one day and said, hey, I've got this wild and crazy offer for you. 
I've been asked if I'd like to join a group who are from entrepreneurs organization who are having a week on Necker Island with Richard Branson. And they asked if there's basically two rooms left and they asked if I knew anyone else who might be interested in going. And I thought you guys would probably for sure, which we absolutely were. So we, we went to Necker Island with a, uh, with a group from entrepreneurs organization in predominantly in the U S and the week was kind of scheduled around this uh, pitch to rich where all of these different entrepreneurs were pitching ideas and investment opportunities and things to Richard. And, and sorry, this is, this is in the Caribbean. Yes. Yes. In, uh, yeah, in the BVI. Right. And Stuart and I had nothing to pitch. We were just fascinated by the idea of going to Necker Island and thought it sounded amazing. Week with Lisa sounded great. And it, the curiosity kind of got too much. We, I think, I think at that stage, Quadrant, yeah, Quadrant had invested in the business. And so we didn't actually need any investment. We had right. nothing to pitch. And I think the curiosity got too much for Richard over the course of the week. And he came up to us and said, you know, you guys haven't pitched anything to me yet. <laughs> and we're like, oh, no, no. You we, don't want we, me. We, we, I, he probably couldn't believe that nobody wanted him as an investor. We're just here for a fun week. <laughs> he was, okay, that's pretty intriguing. And then the following year, Business Chicks actually had a week on Necker Island as part of their sort of leadership gathering and they invited us to go for that and we're like, well, we had a great time last time. We'll go back. We'll go back for another week and do it all again. And then after that, Stuart actually bought me the ticket with Virgin Galactic and Virgin Galactic hold a future astronaut week on Necker Island each year. And so we've been back numerous times now and got to know Richard quite well through that and we were we were there and she said, oh, he goes, you know, I've got an island much closer to you. You don't have to come all the way to the Caribbean, which was make peace. And, and as you said, we um, decided to have our 50th birthday there back in 2019, pre-COVID, thank goodness, and uh, had a fantastic time there. And Richard had extended the opportunity to uh, to join him and Brett Godfrey and Radek Sally, who's also a, a co-owner there as part of the ownership family. Wow. And um We've uh, enjoyed it thoroughly. Okay. Now I have to keep you to one sentence because I've, I've kept you so long and there's still a few more questions I want to ask you. In one sentence, what do you want to get out of being a future astronaut in Virgin Galactic's space journey? Look, for me, it's the ultimate manifestation of the vision, I guess, that I've always tried to live life to, which is around looking at things from a different perspective. Oh, and wow. there's no bigger way to look at the world from a different perspective <laughs> than go to space. Oh, amazing. And so where will you go and when? Spaceport America is the launch site for where the uh, flights will go from. Uh, it's based in New Mexico, just mm-hmm. near White, the White Sands Air Force facility. When is, well, it gets closer every day. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's, a, it's still a bit of a moving target. Yeah. So Virgin's in the last stages of their um, of their flight testing, but they're a publicly listed company now. Yeah. So they actually have to give full disclosure on all of their plans and their market update made public that they expect to fly Richard as the first passenger uh, in the, I think either the first or the second quarter of this year. So it's like a trip into space, is it? It's, it's space tourism. Yeah, exactly. It, it's space tourism. I don't have to do any jobs. I'm not flying it. I'm just sitting in the seat and enjoying the ride and the view. 
Okay, I want to ask you a couple of quick fire questions. They can just be answered with a phrase or a sentence. I'm asking most of my guests this, Kathy. What's your life and or business motto if you have one? Living an epic life. Oh, perfect name. I think that's a good name for a pharmacy business. <laughs> well, be. I think just take, taking taking advantage of every opportunity that presents because one of the things that you see every day in our business is that life doesn't go to plan and if you save things for tomorrow, well, tomorrow may not look like the way you were expecting it to. So seize the moment and live life to the best of your abilities. Kathy, would you do it all again knowing what you've learned in the past 20 years? Yeah, look, I mean, I'd, hopefully I'd try and avoid some of the things that didn't go so well. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, look, I mean, it's, I, I think one of the things that's, that, you know, Stuart and I have loved everything that we've done and everything that we've built and achieved and the, the journey that it's been along the way. So if I had that opportunity again to go, well, would I, would I have stuck with the safe and more conservative and lower risk path or would I have done what we did with the knowledge that it was going to be a pretty hairy ride along the way? I absolutely would have picked the hairy ride every single time. What's the biggest thing you've learned about yourself on this journey to end up building a global empire? The biggest thing I've learned about myself is probably that I do have a much greater capacity for risk-taking than I probably would have would have realized and that I also have a I have more ability than I give myself credit for what advice would you give to those who would love to try and either start their own business or do what you've done look I think the most important thing for entrepreneurs and business owners is to get to a position of honesty and clarity very early on about what are the things that they're good at and what are the things that they're not good at and subsequently to give yourself a license to not to ignore but to accept that you're probably never going to be very good at the things that you're not good at and to actively seek out people who are and give yourself the freedom and the focus to spend your time doing the things that you're actually really good at to try and go from good to great to exceptional rather than focusing on the things that you have no natural talent for and get yourself to average because you're never going to achieve anything remarkable using an average skill set. What's the hardest thing you've had to do in your business or in your career journey? Look, I think the singular hardest thing is always the conversations that you have with either an individual or a team where you have to let them know that they're not going to be part of the team going forward for whatever reason, whether that be performance, whether that be because a contract's been lost or a business has been sold or something along those lines. It's actually having to go and speak with good people and let them know that for whatever reason their their time in the business and in the role that oftentimes they've enjoyed and wanted to be part of is coming to an end is always a really, really tough part of the role and probably the thing that I absolutely enjoy doing the least. What are you obsessed about at the moment, be it a, a film, a cause, a book, a place? Um, look, I've actually just, I've just got onto Clubhouse and I'm finding that that's quite fascinating to see how rapidly that's emerging and how, how much time that can, that can suck away. But I think realistically, the thing that 
I'm spending most of my time in now is actually in, in the cybersecurity world and looking at uh, looking at what's going on there and how uh, data security and data access is actually becoming one of our most important assets, which is a fair way from healthcare, but that's, uh, that's where I'm spending most of my time these days. So will that be another investment for you or another startup? I'm chair of AU Cloud, which is a company we invested yep. in a few years ago, which is a, a, a sovereign cyber infrastructure as a service provider for sovereign data storage. So that's uh, that's probably where a lot of that interest and focus in the cybersecurity world is coming from. Have you got another startup in you? Look, I don't know that I've got another one where we would directly be, where we would be the operational people, probably from an investment perspective, an advising perspective, never say never. But um, I couldn't see one where, you know, where we're back to those kind of 80 and 90 hour working weeks being all things to all people. I, I think uh, I think those days have passed now. Kathy Reed, it has just been my enormous pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining me and giving us so many insights. Thanks so much, Helen. Absolute pleasure. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.